Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, everybody. This is the Angels Podcast, and I am Adam Riggs with my co-host, Matt Gallant. We're here on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in L.A. and more. Matt, how you been doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. You know what, Adam? I'm believing. But I'll tell you, man, since the last time we talked, I was, Angels have been uh, – they're, they're a frustrating team, man. One minute, they look like world beaters, right? They sweep Toronto. Then they go into Houston. And, I mean, let's face it. Houston is like the best team in baseball, right? Yeah. But, man, they, dude, 14-2 and 10-4. Talk about getting your lunch handed to you. Woof. Yeah, that was uh, that was a beat down. Um, <laughs> and they can do it to you, especially when you put it in a ballpark like that. Um, yeah, with that with Monterey's elevation. And uh, we were talking about this before we started the show. Verlander just was not having Monterey because of the elevation as a pitcher. He loved the experience. However, um, I think I could go yard in Monterey. I'm not kidding. Put me in that ballpark, aluminum bat. I think I could hit one out. That's how easy it is to homer in Monterey. It didn't look like a very big park. And when you're that high above sea level, any mistake. What did what did uh, the manager for the, the Astros say? He said, uh, it, or, or was it Osma said, it, it, it rewards solid contact. So yeah. uh, it looked like it, <laughs> it looked like it didn't matter where you hit it. That ball was flying. And I think Verlander's onto something. He's talking about juice baseballs. And um, there's been some controversy for a while now in these baseballs. It seems that, you know, Major League Baseball was saying that they fall uh, within regulation, but we kind of don't know what regulation is. I was uh, reading a book somewhere. I, I forget what the book was called, but it talked about how they did a study on how the laces on these baseball now are, are smaller and tighter. And so right, uh, when, right. when that happens, you have less, um, you have less resistance to the wind. And so pitchers are now being able to throw faster. It doesn't catch the wind as much, but it, it's supposed to, you know, I, I would assume the breaking balls wouldn't break as much either. But from what they said in their study, they said the ball was flying somewhere around five feet further than the baseball did a couple of years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. I read an article too, that said the seams are definitely lower. Um, but let's face it. Baseball, where it is right now, you know, not they're kind of struggling in attendance. Attendance is down all around the country, right? Now, the weather has something to do with that. But when you think about it, remember years ago during the steroid area, st- area era or with uh, McGuire and Bonds, man, ESPN was constantly cutting into their at-bats, right? The world was just in love. Chicks dig the long ball, right? Yep. Baseball could not have been fatter or happier. Ratings were huge, right? Yeah, yeah. They All were struggling. Sudden, like, yeah, they struggling. were struggling up until that point. There, there's no Right, doubt. and they were in huge trouble. And then, so then what happens? Oh, okay, they crack down on performance-enhancing drugs. But one of the big things that a lot of people don't realize, and I read this in the Peter Gammons article years ago, they also cut down on amphetamine use, okay? Mm-hmm. And... Gammon said the offensive numbers are going to drop because it is, as you know, and you can talk about this and I want you to, 
it is not humanly, it's not normal to play ball day after day, travel to all these cities and expect your performance and your energy level to be at its all time high, right? So these guys back in the day, right? Take a little, you know, amphetamines. They have the energy to play, work out, and do all that stuff. They cut that out. What happens? Home runs drop. Everything's changing. Also, pitching is getting better, whatever. But they say that's a big part of it. So getting back to it, I'm rambling here. I think this is great for baseball. These home runs, the bat flips. I mean, I think it's really great for baseball. Although, and after your answer, I want to ask you, I saw something yesterday that just made me die laughing. And I want to ask you your opinion as a pro. What do you think? I think these home runs, are, it's great for baseball. If you're a pitcher, not so much. But if you're a hitter, you know, mid-range power and you're hitting, you've got nine bombs already, I think it's, I think it's good for the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. As a fan, I like to see I like to see guys go deep. I like to see high scoring games. But but I'm a hitter, right? I mean, maybe if you're a, you're a fan of defense, you're a fan of uh, maybe you're a high school pitcher. Maybe you uh, don't enjoy it as much. But you would think that because the laces are down and, and the ball carries more, uh, velocity would be up you're starting to see why teams are searching out that guy that has the spin rate right on the four seam fastball, because it's right. so important. It's so important with less seams or with less air catching the seams in order to keep that high fastball elevated, you're going to need a high spin rate. So that's why you're seeing teams are actively going out and picking up guys, no matter what their numbers are with high spin rates. Because sometimes if a guy's throwing 95, but he doesn't have that real crisp spin on his ball, that ball slows down a little more and it drops a little more and you're able to catch up to it and hit it. And and, and I remember facing Billy Wagner. Billy Wagner mm-hmm. was really short guy and he threw extremely hard, especially for a lefty back in back in those days. He threw me three fastballs that looked like they were at my waist. And when I swung, they were at my chest. And so I I had never seen a guy throw from that, you know, he was pretty short. So he was throwing, it looked like from lower, but by the time Mm -hmm. the ball got to me, it was really high. And, and I saw something about him that, that he worked so much on, on spinning the ball with his fastball and his four seam that he could elevate it and you would swing and miss. And, and there's guys out there that throw 92 that you'll swing and miss and you'll say, man, that's 92. I should be hitting that. How is he getting that by me? Well, they have that extra hop on their ball that right. they just can't quantify until now, until this this new uh, technology that's been, uh, you know, it's not really that new, but it's it's something that people are paying attention to now. I just think it's, I, 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 I think it's just all the home runs and even the controversy with, oh, the ball's juiced. With the, you know, we talked about it last time, the bat flipping. Tim Anderson's epic bat flip. Um, but I wanted to ask you this. Okay, so I'm watching the Cincinnati Reds game yesterday uh, on DirecTV, and uh, they go back to back to back. Okay, they're wearing the old uniforms. And did you see uh, Dietrich? He's been playing second base, and now he's in the outfield. He's got nine homers for them. He had on, dude, the guy looked like such a clown. It was hilarious. I didn't know if I was like, wait, is that disrespectful of the game? 
or is he just having fun? He had an eye black mustache he drew on his face to look like the 1901, you know, and he had his eye black was practically his entire face, like his cheeks. You got to look it up. He looked like such a clown. Now, as a player, you go, oh, that guy's funny. Or you're sitting there going, come on, dude, you're a tool. No, I mean, I, I saw it. He was actually he actually painted a mustache on himself. Yes, uh, he had with, a mustache. With eye black. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the eye black mustache. And then he also had, he took his eye black and he made it like circles under his eyes. When guys did stuff like that, for me, I, I didn't care. I thought it was I thought it was pretty funny. I could laugh at stuff like that. I mean, there's other guys that are, you know, take things a lot. And we discussed this before. They take things very seriously. And they're like, come on, do you right, respect right. the game? You know, you got to respect the right. game and, and all this other stuff. Game, but, right. you know, like it's it's just a game. And, and guys want to have fun. And I'm sure the fans enjoyed it. And he got on SportsCenter and they showed it. And he ended up hitting a home run. And, and he, he pimped that sucker a little bit, too. If he saw oh, he did. Did you see that? I was going to ask you about that. He pimped it when he had his jeans out and his shirt was like open down to the navel. I'm like, dude, this guy's like uh, staying alive, you know? It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's (laughs) pretty funny. I mean, yeah. There's actually a YouTube character. I forget. I forget who it is. Something Ayala. That all these all these younger kids will watch it, and he makes jokes all the times, like he's going to the big leagues. And I think it looked mm-hmm. like he was doing something like you know something like what what that guy was doing. Right. And you know, again, it, the funny thing is, he uh, Derek Dietrich, the guy's got nine homers, and he's playing lights out. So I guess you're right. If he's having fun, like today, he went out and. Uh, like there were a bunch of bees at the at the Reds game, and he went out in a bee like a beekeeper thing. <laughs> it was like fake no spraying the bees. Yeah, that's oh, <laughs> job. But that's great. fun. You're right. That is. Why not? Why not have fun? Speaking of somebody that um, really isn't having too much fun, I'm shifting gears a little. I'm going to bring it back to the Angels because you you look at some of the statistics, okay, and you look at some of the guys, you know, and we talked about this before about pitching and how it's it's up and down and everything. Look at Trevor Cahill. Okay. We know he's on a one year, $9 million contract. So he's playing for his future. Now, last year, the guy gave up eight home runs and 110 innings, which isn't bad. This year, you ready? This year, 12 homers in 33 and two thirds innings. Dude, that's insane. That's a lot of homers. Yeah, yeah, those numbers are a little disturbing because you could yeah. always say, ah, man, they're getting cheap hits off me or I'm running into some bad luck. But, man, when they're going, when they're leaving the yard, there's there's, there's none of that. It's not luck. That's guys um, taking good swings off you and squaring them up. Right, and getting good and really seeing the ball well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, let's just, let's just keep our fingers crossed, hope that, um, you know, he figures something out, goes back to the tape, you know, maybe finds a key that that's missing. Maybe, you know, maybe he's tipping his pitches. Maybe, you know, maybe other teams are picking stuff up off of him and kind of know what's coming. You just never know what's going on. And, and, and little things yeah. creep in to your mechanics that you can't see unless you're really on it with the video. Yeah. Now, something, something we were talking about before we started tonight was you look at the, okay, you look at the angels right now. Okay, look at their their place in the standings. 15 and 19, right? Five games Mm -hmm. out, right? 
you take Houston out of this division, let's just say Houston isn't in this division, all right? The Angels are within reach of pretty much every team in baseball, with the exception of the Astros, the Twins, and uh, I'd say the Rays, because Rays are 22 and 12. And Everybody the else. And the Yankees are 20, yeah, 20 and 14. Okay. But everyone else, excluding those four teams, Red Sox, 17 and 19. Indians, 18 and 15. Mariners, 19 and 18. Angels, 15 and 19. And if you go back to that losing streak, okay, when they lost starting uh, April 15th, when they lost Texas, they lost one, two, three, four, five, six. They won. So they're one and six. They lost seven, eight, nine. Okay. So they were one and nine from April 15th until April 24th. One and nine. You split that, make it 500. They're, they're a game out. They're two games out of, uh, out of first place. So even with all this pitching, what I'm trying to say is uh, pitching issues, the Angels are still. Um, and they're, they're getting better every week. And I know that sounds like a homer, and it kind of is, but they're getting better every week. Well, well, you're right. You're 100% right. So, so Texas on the 17th, they lose by one run. Seattle on the 18th, they lose by one run. 19th, they lose by two. 20th, they lose by one run. They yeah. win the next one. 22nd, they lose by one run, lose by two runs, lose by one run. They get then they get blown out by the Yankees. Then they win, uh, they win against Kansas City, lose against Kansas City, yeah. win. And so those, those games could have went either way. I mean, you're losing by one run. You're not getting blown out. You're competitive every night. The disturbing thing for me is when they play a better team like New York. New York wins three out of four, right? And then right. you play Houston, and it's not even close. They beat up on Toronto, who's not very good, and they beat up on Kansas City, who's not very good. So right now, when it's time to step up against the big boys, you know, it's just not happening. But they have held their own without Otani and without uh, Upton. So it's going to be interesting to see when Otani gets back what they do first and foremost with the lineup. But you know, he'll be right in there, but they've got a real big hole with Justin Bohr hitting 169 in 89 at-bats. That's a big, big sample size. He's got three home runs, 13 RBIs, and uh, yeah, that's a big, that's a big hole in the lineup right there. It is, but you, like you said, Otani's supposed to come back Tuesday night. Now, look, no guarantee he's going to be what he was last year, but chances are he will. You know what I mean? Or better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 20, hit 22 bombs last year. First year in, in, in the MLB. So putting his bat in the lineup, I mean, think about this right now. Trout's hitting, what about, yeah, Trout's hitting 290. Okay. Mm-hmm. 20 homer, uh, 20 RBIs, seven home runs. And like you said, they're really not pitching to him. Put Otani's bat in there. Mike Trout, obviously, is going to get more pitches to hit. Right or or yeah. be hitting with Mike Trout on base. Yeah, which will score him more. I mean, I think he's going to get more pitches. I think, especially if Otani gets hot, uh, I think Otani will have much more chance. If not, he'll have a chance to hit with guys on base 
and you're gonna you're gonna see an uptick in runs. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a lot better. So people saying now oh, it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as lineup protection. But I I just don't understand it. I don't understand why they would say that because there is <laughs> you know there is such thing as lineup protection. He will see more pitches with Otani behind him. So I think I think it's gonna be great. It's gonna do wonders for him. It's just you know Otani's coming back. It's his second year in the league. Now he knows what to expect. I mean it's a completely different league going from Japan to the United States. Uh, he's in a new country. You know, I went from states to Japan. There's that there's that good month of going, what the heck is going on? Because the style of pitching is so different. Um, and so, yeah, he's not going to have to go through that. But he is going to have to get his timing back. I know he's doing simulated games right now. But that's not like hitting in front of, you know, 30,000 people. You just can't simulate that. And so that's going to take a little bit of time to get that timing back, get back in the routine. But he's such a, a special player, a special athlete. I, I don't I don't think he'll miss a beat. Yeah. And then, you know, my, uh, my one of my favorite angels, Brian Goodwin, still hitting a robust 323. Dude, he is still putting it together. And that's like a 100 at bat almost. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, bad, and I, yeah, he's, solid. he is really stepping up. You know, I mean, you look at what he's able to do. I mean, that's a great surprise considering Upton's out. When's Upton coming back? Like next month? I, I don't even oh, know. It, I, mean, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I have no idea lately. Yeah, I haven't seen anything on him. So, um, you know, we'll what see. It, it'll so be nice. Hopefully, they'll be hanging around long enough to to where to where it matters. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, I like the fact that um, Simmons is hitting again, 285. Um, yeah, he started off really could... slow for 285 right now. To you know, his spring training was horrible. He had a horrible spring training. Barely, I mean, he was struggling bad. He started off the season real slow, but he's at uh, 285 now, and he's playing unbelievable shortstop. It's like every every night he makes a highlight play. It's uh, it's that that dude's amazing. He's pretty he good. Is. Player. I just wish I could say his name, Andrelton. Smoothly, I can't say Andrelton Simmons without going uh, Andrelton. <laughs> How about just get, you know you know what? I was doing some tennis, you know, reporting one time at this tennis tournament in Palm Springs, and uh, I hacked up so many of the Eastern Bloc tennis players' names. They didn't invite me back. <laughs> Thanks for coming, dude. Yeah, yeah that's all right. Like, uh, that's all right. I'll invite you back. You're fine. Oh, you're you're kind of come and- back. Andrelton Simmons. Now, you know what I'm happy about? I'm happy about, and this guy's getting his average up, but dude, Cole Calhoun, eight bombs, which is nice to see. And you see him throwing his throwing himself around the field the other day this weekend. <laughs> yeah. He gets after. He's kind of like a hyperactive eight-year-old. You know, when you throw candy on the floor, they just go nuts. He's out there like he is. Yeah, he's, he's a gamer, dude. He's he's, he's definitely a gamer. He's, he's, that's why they love him so much. He's getting paid a ton of money, but you still see the effort. It's it's pretty cool. The team's coming together, man. I, I really do believe you take out that horrendous losing streak, right? Even make it a 500. This team is in second place without, you know, while the pitching is still gelling. Without Shohei Otani, without Upton, Mike Trout missed what ten games with a the groin. So, like you said, it's a long season, but still, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a total homer here and say, you know, 
the Angels, you know, have a shot to come in second in the division. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, I really think. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they can pull a wild card spot. I mean, I I know we're already talking like we're giving the division the Astros, but that team is pretty strong. I mean, (laughs) they're class. I honestly, God, I didn't think Boston would beat them last year. Uh, And you know, you take away that home run interference call against Mookie Betts when Mookie was out there, right? Uh, You take away that play, you give them a home run. It's a totally different series. And Benettendi yeah. doesn't make a diving catch on Alex Bergman. It's a different series, but I mean that's baseball. And, but wow. look at let's let's take a look at them. I mean they're batting as a team. They're hitting two seventy three. The next best team in the American League is the Yankees at two fifty seven. That's a huge gap. Huge wow. gap. Fifty seven home runs, which is second. No, third. Because the Twins have 59 and Seattle has 70. What's surprising to me, Seattle batting 247, 70 home runs. They have the most runs scored with 207. That's that's 35, 36 more than the Astros. Isn't that crazy? It is, but they came out hot out of the gates with all those bombs, home runs. But look at them, yeah. last 10, last 10, three and seven. Yeesh. Yeah. Not good. I'll tell you, you know, you look at, you look at baseball and, you know, you look at these payrolls, the Yankees, the Red Sox, Astros have a pretty good payroll. And then you look at the the Rays, right? It's youth, it's young and hungry guys. They're 22 and 12, man. The Rays' best record in the American League and one of the best in baseball. In fact, it is. They're tied with they the Dodgers a, for the best record in baseball. Because yeah, they have a team 2.9 ERA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You if you, you gotta, I mean, if you can't score on them, you can't beat them. You know, the the ERA yeah. is just crazy. And the Astros are respectably second at, at a 3.59. So, I mean, Tampa's actually fourth in uh, fourth in, in team batting average, and they're one point out of second. And, Bad average. So that's why the, the the record's showing what it's showing here. So, but it's also too. Do you find that with teams like that, like that, you know, you look at these guys and you look at they're all relatively unknown outside of Tommy Finn, you know, the guy they got from St. Louis. You know, relatively unknown guys, probably on low money contracts, and they're playing for their future. So they seem to be not that. Not all pros play hard, but you know what I mean? Uh, you know, these young, hungry guys trying to make mm-hmm. a name for themselves. I mean, that energy. Trying to make money for themselves is what they're yeah, trying, trying to Yeah, trying to make money. I mean, isn't it crazy <laughs> how that as a, as a motivational tool, like the guy on a one-year contract being in the NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball, their performance just seems to most of the time be at its peak. You know, yes. I mean, especially I, when, the it, stuff, it, when it's guaranteed money, you know, yeah. when it's guaranteed money, you sign a multi-year guaranteed money deal. You know, you've got a couple of years to, you know, where you coast. don't maybe maybe they coast. I don't know. I've never been in that situation, but, um, you know, not everybody's like that. But, you know, again, look at those look at those teams like you're saying, right. The the Rays have been bad for a while. Right. They they've been pretty bad, which means they've been drafting real high up on that uh on the draft and 
you know, I, I haven't researched the team or anything, but you know, you got to figure they were drafting top five picks in the last couple of years, and uh, you're starting well, to saw, probably yeah. pay off. Right. That plus they. You know who's impressive? Trade. You know who's impressive to me? Look yeah. at the Yankees. The Yankees are 20 and 14. They're yeah. two games. They're two games back of the of the Rays, and they've had they've been decimated, and they started off pretty slow. That they've been doing pretty well. The, for, listen to their lineup. Listen to the Yankees lineup. Yeah, I mean, listen to their lineup. I mean, Boone's a great manager. I loved him on, in the booth on ESPN, but he's a great manager. Okay, so they, they did sign LeMahieu as a free agent. Okay, so we know him. He's starting first baseman, Voight. Eh. Up until this year, he was a whatever. You know, wasn't, now he's getting a chance to play. He's doing great. Gary Sanchez is back. And then mm-hmm. he was gone for a while. Uh, yeah, he's Andy been back Har's for like a back. week. Yeah, Andrew Har's been back a couple games. Clint Frazier was out. You got Mabin, they picked up playing right field, Gardner in center. I can't even say Urshela mm-hmm. at third, yep. Estrada at short, Talkman in left. What? Well, as you know, it really matters uh, when it's a team game that the guys have some kind of chemistry, be it right, be it the B, the B level or the filling guys whoever it is, it seems like the teams that get along or look like they're having fun or they're a good team seem to do better than the teams that are just like, eh, go fuck yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not always. I mean, I think there's something to be said for that, but there's also teams that, I mean, it's documented the Dodgers back in the days, Steve Garvey and Ron say didn't get along very well, but they're professionals when they, when they crossed the line, they, they go ahead and, and do their job. And that was more of a veteran team. But you're right. I mean, when, when you got young guys coming up, it's nice to have, you know, good, solid veteran support that accepts them and helps them and brings them along and so kind of calms the nerves. And that's pretty universal in all sports, I would, I would assume. Oh, yeah. You definitely, definitely do. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Uh, talk a little bit about Mike Trout. 29 straight games reaching base. It's a club record. Explain to everybody how difficult that is. <laughs> I mean, 29 straight games. That's 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 pretty difficult to do, especially in the major leagues. Yeah, and I think his focus was on striking out less, being more selective. And mm-hmm. he's accomplished that. I mean, he's he has 31 walks and 16 strikeouts. That's amazing. I think I saw a stat where his on-base percentage is something like 400 in games where he doesn't get hits. The best player in the game basically said, what can I get better at? It's walking more. It's being more selective at the plate. It's just amazing to me that the best player in the game says, this is what I'm going to work on, and and he's done it. So he's made a huge yeah. improvement in that in that respect. So it's difficult to get on base, but a guy like that that's so dangerous in, in the lineup that they're throwing up or was throwing up early in the season, there was no reason to pitch to him at all. And so oh, at all. He, he could have, at all, he could have yeah. been batting 220 right now if he swung the bat every time he went up, right? So he needed to be disciplined and he needed to, to, gra- to get those walks. And even though people – you know, we're going through slumps and not driving him in. If you get on base enough, these guys are professionals. The the law of averages, they, they're going to start driving you in. 
Well, that's, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is kind of cool to see like the best guy in the game go, yeah, I got to work on this. I think yeah. I'm going to, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. It is. It really is. That's why you get the big bucks, man, because you, I mean, they know what kind of character he is. They know what kind of clubhouse guy he is. I do want to say one thing, a little negative about Mike Trout, if I I may. No, you can't. I bought his Nike shoes last year. Mm -hmm. They run a half size small. (laughs) Okay. That's it. That's my negative thing. There you go. (laughs) I scared you there, Adam, didn't I? You're like, whoa. An angel's podcast, bro. Let's, let's, let's dial it in. Speaking of negative, yeah. did you see what what Harvey when he oh, was taking yeah, it? Oh uh, yes. I was gonna. I wanted to ask you about that. So, Asmus comes out. Uh, Asmus comes out. Removes Harvey. Two outs. Bases loaded. Angels up three two. So I'm like, what's he doing? You know, Harvey. You know, Harvey's pitching a good game. The Dark Knight, which I, I hate that nickname. The Dark Knight, he's pitching a good game. So yep. uh, in comes Bedrosian, right? Cam Bedrosian mm-hmm. um, gives up the Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what is going on? Come on, Brad. But if you look at the, if you look at the, uh, the stats, Alex Bergman was just one for 11 against Bedrosian till that, till that pitch. So by yep. the bat. And Bedrosian was, Bedrosian was, was, uh, he went nine to third innings of scoreless relief before he came in there. So you got to figure, you know, Bregman's one for 11, Bedrosian's nine, nine to third innings scoreless relief. The bullpen was fresh. They got another day off coming in. So, you know, Osmos was like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to ride the bullpen the rest of the way in and um, let's get Bedrosian in there and get him out. Now, Harvey only had 57 pitches and he was coming off two solid games he had pitched out of trouble early in the game, but you know that's a tough call. That's why the manager has those press conferences afterwards because he has to explain stuff like that. And and there there is a camp out there that says third time through the lineup is trouble. The batting average yeah. is hot, and that's why you have openers to get those yeah. first three or four guys. You don't face them. You start off with the fourth or fifth hitter. Then when you get through back to the top of the order, which is your best hitters hitting second, you got a great hitter usually batting first, your best hitter hitting second, and then your second, your other best hitter hitting third. And so you miss those guys the first time through. They don't see you. Because Ted Williams always talked, look, every pitch I get, I'm gathering data. Every time I get a pitch, I'm knowing more and more and more about this guy and the better chance I have. So Osmus is one of those stat cast guys, you know, he's, he believes in the data and what it says, and he's averse to letting a guy go the third time through the order. And that's what he believes. And he made the move on what he believes. And this time it backfired on him. Yeah. And here's the thing too, you know, they're playing at super elevation, right? In Monterey. It's bound to happen, and uh, and Bergman's a hot hitter, dude. And and think about this too: the at bat before against Harvey, he hit one pretty deep. Yeah, he flew out like deep to that. Yeah, and, and another and think thing: about Harvey Harvey's not missing a lot. I mean, he's not. I think he had like one strikeout that game. And so when you're playing in a place 
like that and you're not a strikeout pitcher, eventually you're going to give up the long ball or you're going to give up some doubles and you're going to give up some hits because you're you're pitching to contact. I haven't looked, but maybe Bedrosian is more of a strikeout. I don't know what his stats are, but maybe he's thinking this guy can get a strikeout here and stay away from these elements. You know, we need to get more swings and misses. We need to limit our, our damage, you know, from balls in the air. Right. No, it makes sense. And hey, I wanted to ask you, because I know we have a special interview coming up. Mm -hmm. We Tell everybody about it. What's going to be after after, attached to this podcast is going to be what is the interview? Yeah, I I went I I was in uh, New York and I and I visited with uh, Ron Renicky. He was uh, with the Angels back when they won the 2002 world series. And, and man, I, I think, I think he coached with the angels for 15 years was the was the third base coach was the bench coach mm-hmm. uh, was my, was, you know, my coach when I was with the angels as well. And I've known him for a long time. He, he was my manager in rookie ball in a ball. He's amazing. And it's a really cool interview. We go over some of the old Dodger stuff that we were had together and some of the teams that we, we were with just, just to get a little background. But then we go over when Sosha took over in 2000, how they turned it around so quickly. And, and, and there wasn't a lot of change in personnel, but um, we talk about the staff. I mean, it, at one point you had Sosha as the manager, Ron Renicky, who, you know, who managed with the, um, with the Brewers and turned that team mm-hmm. around and is now the bench coach of the Red Sox. Uh, you had Buddy yeah. Black is the pitching coach. You had Joe Madden. You had Joe Madden as Joe the Madden, bench yeah. coach. I mean, think about that. That's that's probably the best coaching staff of all time. Oh. And so uh, oh, yeah. it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It gives us a little behind the uh, scenes look at uh, at that team and how they turned it around. And, and it's it, it's it's pretty interesting in interview. I think I think the guys will enjoy it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because I know. Uh... You know, I don't want to cut into that time. Um, well, Adam, I do want to say that before we go, um, my men's league team is 8-0 and in first place. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> I know you're really curious. I'm sure, I'm sure people out there really care. Too. I'm sure. Now, that, do, eight, no, now man. that you got that out there, people people will be able to rest. Yes, B- be BCBL. You guys need to move up a division. If you're 8-0, move up a division. Get a little no, more comfortable. Man, listen, we're the oldest team in the league. We're playing 18-year-olds, man. We're, we're double right. A. We're AA right now. And I just want to say this. It's nice to be hitting. That's all I'm going to say. I don't like to brag. That's all I'm going to say. Because as the base, as you know, baseball is a very streaky game. So hopefully next week I'll have some more good news. <laughs> well, Matt, thanks, buddy. I really enjoyed us. Um, I really enjoyed spending time with you and uh, hearing about your uh, your softball team. And uh, why, oh, why don't you baseball. take us take us out, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll listen to uh, the interview with Ron Renicky. Oh man, I'll tell you, it is. I just want to say this: I love the game of softball, but I play baseball. Hey guys, listen. If you uh, enjoyed the show, please subscribe. We are available on your Favorite directories, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeart. You can find us at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com and at Believe Podcasts. Once again, that's B-L-E-A-V Podcasts. If you like us, please rate the show on iTunes. And in the description, write a question 
and we will be happy to answer it on the show. And here's a question from an actual listener. It says, Matt, how are you such a good hitter in your men's league? Signed, mom. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy. Well, enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Yeah, Hey, we'll we'll see you next week. And uh, listen to this interview. It's fantastic. Today, I'm joined by Ron Renneke, 12-year coach of the Angels, including the third base coach on the 2002 World Series team. He is currently the bench coach for the Boston Red Sox. Rags, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, you bet. Anytime. In 1977, you were selected 17th overall by the Dodgers out of UCLA. You played for 12 years. How did you end up getting into coaching? Uh, I think the biggest thing, uh, because I moved around so much in my playing career, played for uh, eight different teams, uh, six of them in the big leagues. Played for a lot of managers, uh, obviously a lot of coaches along with that. And and I think because you move around so much, you you start figuring out things. It kind of prepares you, I guess, for uh, if you do go into coaching, which I really feel that that happened. And you know, I was released and I was sold. And so all the things that can happen to players, I, I it happened to me. And, and so it's easy to kind of identify with what goes on and the feelings that different guys have. How did you actually get your first job with the Dodgers? So I finished in uh, 89 and 90, uh, actually started working for a a land surveyor. Uh, My father-in-law had an engineering company with a surveying team in it. And I started doing that for about, I think I did for about six months. And then I got a call from the Dodgers asking if I'd come in and help throw batting practice. I lived in the LA area. So, you know, hit ground balls, whatever I could do to help out. And then and then the next year, they asked me if I'd go to Double A and uh, be the hitting coach there. In 1994, they asked you to manage in Great Falls, Montana. Your assistant coach was Dino Ebel. I was happened to be on that team. Uh, what was that like being in the big leagues for so long, then going to the lowest level in professional baseball? Well, when they first asked me to do that, I was I in the sky with the Dodgers for two years, so 92, 93. When they asked me to do that in 94, I really didn't want to do it. I wanted to, to get into coaching, and I wanted to manage. I really didn't want to do spring training and extended spring training, which is another two months down in Florida, oh, yeah. and then going to the rookie level. I met with Glenn Hoffman, who was our field coordinator at the time, and um, Charlie Blaney was the, the farm director. And they kind of talked me into it, basically. So I did it, uh, and after I did it, I was so glad I did it. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because, you know, as a player, you think you kind of know everything. You think I was a bench player. I started for a little bit. I changed teams. I learned all this stuff from all this switching over to different personalities that I figured I, I could just go manage an A-ball team or whatever. So I didn't want to do the, <laughs> the spring training extended spring. And then once I did it, I realized, wow, I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. <laughs> and so uh, so I was able to, to basically put together on what you need to do. Um, you know, your thinking has to be way different. You think things just kind of come and happen to you, and, and that's not the case. Um, we talked earlier about how the game gets real fast, and, and it was re- going too fast for me until I got the thinking right. I got the order of thinking. You know, first I got to worry about, you know, my signs you know, to the hitters. And then you, because when you manage an A ball and you don't have a lot of help, you have to have, also have to figure out, well, is there a pinch hitter coming up? And what do I do in the bullpen? And so all these things you have to be on top of. And you're also coaching third base, which is way different. So 
uh, trying to figure out everything uh, was a huge uh, advantage going to extended spring training, learning how to do it, making mistakes, figuring out how to do it the right way. And, uh, and then when I, once I went to the, to the rookie ball up in Great Falls where I saw you, I started to get it a little bit. I still wasn't real good at that time, but I started to get a little bit. Do you remember our infield? I'm going to give you some names here. Our infield was Scott Hunter, who was a high school player, drafted pretty high. Raphael Gross was our shortstop. I was playing second, and J.P. Roberge was at first. That is possibly the worst infield ever to play the game. <laughs> I mean, I think Scott Hunter had 40 errors. I probably had close to 30. Gross was throwing the ball all over the place. Roberge looked like a catcher. Uh, when he was done, he had bruises all over him. I mean, poor guy would come off the field and, and have to take ice baths. What was that like watching us just wing it around the park like we were doing? Yeah, that was um, that was a little different. JP was actually, he was okay defensively. He was, he uh, was good. He was coming out of USC. And, yeah. And, um, yeah. And he was pretty good. But, um, yeah, you guys were raw. You had, um, especially you and, and Scotty Hunter, yes. uh, had tremendous ability. It was just trying to put it all together. <laughs> Um, offensively the same way great ability great power Um, it's just trying to figure out the swing and how you repeat it and 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 that goes into defense too it's you know repetitive ground balls and confidence plays a huge part in that when when you you know you make an error and then how do you feel on the next ball that's hit to you are you nervous or or you know you can make the play and so it's kind of getting used to that and and, uh, and you guys figuring out okay how do I bounce back when I make mistakes and and is the manager still going to be mad at me and, and all those things? And, and, and again, I was learning from that part of it and knowing that nobody wants to make mistakes and, and knowing how much it hurts a player when he's making an error. And, uh, and he doesn't want to see that manager over there being mad about it. So you, I learned You were that. good. No, you were really good with that. So the Dodgers had a philosophy that they said, we are not going to instruct these guys on hitting we're going to let them play the first year, see how they do, throw them in the deep water. So we're about halfway through. I'm batting 180, and I'm calling my mother and saying, I don't know if this is for me. I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't know if you remember this, but I came up to you and I asked you, and I said, man, I need some help. I am struggling. I had a really big loop in my swing. I was leaning back, and I just couldn't catch up to a fastball. I kept fouling off the fastballs, hitting with two strikes. I'm glad you took the job because after working with you for a couple weeks, I really, really turned it around, and I it, it was like I had never played the game before. It was it was amazing how you flattened my swing. I stayed in the zone a long time. I wasn't leaning back. My posture, I stayed in my posture when I hit. And I used to, I remember I used to ask you, hey, show me that swing again. And you would show me in slow motion how to swing the bat. And I would just, when I would go hit, I would just picture you in my mind for years and years and years. You know, you made a huge impact on my life. And I'm so happy that you took the job. And I think that uh, you've been coaching so long. You've, you've probably done that for countless individuals. But anyway, I was so glad that you did that. I finished, I think that year I would finish at 308. To finish that high, I mean, I had a pretty good second half. Yeah, great second half. And, and, uh, and really, that's why we coach. Uh, we coach to help the guys and to try to get the most out of whatever their abilities are. Because... Um, you have tremendous ability, very strong, short swing, and uh, and it was this straight uppercut when, when I first <laughs> saw you. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember, but we went into Butte one time, and, and there was a football field that was like you know 50 to 100 yards to the left of left field, 
and you like hit a ball through their goalposts one day. I remember that. <laughs> and I looked over there and I went, wow, that's, that's not easy to do. So, uh, but I think, you know, once you, um, once you figured out that swing and got it where it was flatter and, and, you know, when people talk about a flat swing, and I know you, today everybody's talking about this gentle kind of upswing, that happens even when the guy is flat. You know, you're flat through the zone, but you're you're trying to match that yeah. trajectory of the ball. And yeah. it's, it still is a little bit of a, you know, you go down to get it, and then you kind of finish going up. So yeah, yeah. So people miss, they kind of listen to different things. And, and when you tell somebody to be flat, you're just trying to match that ball coming in and being in the zone as long as you can. That's kind of the challenge with working with young hitters nowadays is that they see the finish of the swings and... They all want to stay on the backside and collapse and kind of swing up. And that's that's a difficult part of teaching. You might feel like, you know, you're it's a gentle upswing, but it, it's a straight uppercut. So next year in 95, you get to manage in San Bernardino. You were really good. I mean, you were talking about managing and all aspects of the game. I mean, we were so well managed. I don't want to give up any of your signs because you might still be using them. I mean, we knew when off speed was coming. We knew when, I mean, we learned how to bunt. We learned how to play fundamental baseball and we had a really, really good team that year. Do you remember, do you remember that year? Was that, was that oh, yeah. a pretty cool year? Or what? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a special year. You know, we had uh, we had talent on our team. I mean, between you and and uh, Canerico, you know, offensively. But the other guys, you know, even though they maybe not had the talent you guys had, they really knew how to play. You talked about Dino Evo, and Dino was my first base coach there. And you just you don't get any better coach than him. And between the two yeah. of us, we had an absolute blast. I mean, oh, yeah. We just we could do whatever we wanted to do. And <laughs> Dino know. was picking up signs from the other team, and he was telling me what they were. And uh, and you guys, because you were smart, you guys understood what, what we wanted, and we went through you know both halves and went mm -hmm. through the playoffs and played a great team. I don't know if you remember how oh, good yeah. that Fresno? team was in, in uh, San Jose. Oh, San Jose, that's right. In San Jose, I mean, my gosh, they had some studs on that team, and we went through and, and beat them to, to win the championship. So, yeah. so the combination of... You know, really understanding how to play, and and you guys were really good at that. You picked up things really fast. Dino and I talk about it all the time. It's such a fun year. Yeah, it was. A, we had a good mix. Though. We had uh, we had some older guys and some younger guys. The one thing I I talk to Canerco every now and then. I talk to Hergis every now and then, and we always talk about how crazy that team was. I mean, guys would snap on that team. We I remember we had plastic chairs in that dugout, and sometimes, I mean, they would just be exploding all over the place. I remember Scott Hunter running out to left field, screaming the whole way. I mean, Canerco yelling from the dugout. I mean, at the time, nobody wanted to, you know, laugh because you're a guy so mad, but oh, looking back, that's one of my favorite years ever in pro ball. It was awesome. Yeah. You have to be able to laugh at some things, and, and getting mad is part of it. I mean, it's part of developing it's part of trying to figure out how to do things better and if you're never mad at anything you don't sometimes you don't push yourself to, to learn and to get better so yeah. I understood that part of it I tried to not let it get too out of control I remember <laughs> having to take a couple guys out of a game but, guilty guilty but, yeah. yeah but I tried not to <laughs> Try not to do that too much. So in San Bernardino, I don't know if you know this, but we used to mimic you all the time. We would mimic you constantly. Canerco would do you the best. So now, you know, I'm, I'm helping out this, uh, this high school team, and I find myself saying the exact same things that you said to me. I mean, I remember you used to tell me, hey, were you late on that 2-0 swing? 
And then you would say, guys, if I was ever laid on a tubo swing, I wouldn't play the next day. And I say that to these guys. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm turning into rags. Uh, and I remember I remember there's a time where I went in, went to my left. And it was a double play ball. I should have turned it. And I went to first base. And you, you sat me down. He said, look, man, we're not playing to be an A ball. We're playing to be in the big leagues. So you need to learn to make that play. And if you make the error, it's okay. And Sosha as well. Sosha was a huge impact on me. I remember near when I was up at the Angels, I was going up and down. And finally, he called me and he's like man I just want you to compete and have good ABs and kind of when that clicked in my head I should have known that before that but now that I can talk to these guys and say hey man look you're 0 for 8 but just have some good ABs I've been there I've done it you know if you if you haven't been there and done it, it's hard to counsel somebody I haven't walked in their shoes so uh it's I have a lot of respect for you guys and what you've done and uh just sitting where you sat you know um it's uh it's pretty cool this is really cool. So let's go. You went through the minor leagues a couple more years to 99. Um, in 2000, you get a call from Mike Sosha. How'd that go? What was that like? You know, it was, uh, it was a point where Mike wanted to get into managing. So he went back and managed in 99. I managed in 99, flipped over to the Giants. And, um, and it was basically whoever got a big league job first or either of us did, the other would come over. And, and it deservedly... Um, he got the job, uh, asked me to come over, was his third base coach there for five years before I, I switched over and was his bench coach for another six. We were button heads a lot, but we were such good friends that, you know, we may get mad at each other, but the next day we were fine. But um, but I had managed a long time, a lot longer than he had, and I understood things, I think, a little bit better as far as managing. And uh, so we would talk, we would disagree. And then, you know, after, you know, two years or whatever, he, he was just outstanding. He's got a great mind, uh, mm-hmm. great memory, a great feel for the guys, and, and that's why he became the manager he did. When you took over, they were 70 and 92. As soon as you guys took over, you went to 82 and 80. And then in 2002, you went 99 and 63, and you won the World Series. What was the plan? What do you think was the impact to raise that team from 70 and 92, last in the division, to winning a World Series two years later? That's, that's a massive turnaround. Yeah, and I think not really uh, too many uh, different player personnel during during that time. It, it, we basically had the same guys, very talented. The outfield is probably as good as you can get. Yeah. And with Erstad and Anderson and Salmon, who you know can yeah. really play. And, and um, I think the biggest thing was Sosha's personality. What he believed would cause a player to get the most out of him was, uh, for one, to be able to play free, to not worry about making mistakes, be very aggressive. On the base path, he was as aggressive as anybody I've ever seen. And if you got thrown out trying to go from first to third, and he honestly didn't care. He, he was happy that you tried to do it. You know, you get thrown out, you're going to learn from it. You're not going to get thrown out by 20 feet. You know, you're going to learn what your limit is. But when we first got over there, it was base to base. So base it to right field or runner on first, and he just cruised into second, didn't even think about going to third. It's tough in that park, too, right? The ball doesn't fly in that park at no, night, No, it right? doesn't yeah. at all. So it was just it was a mindset of trying to free these guys up. They had great ability. Free them up and to be, let them be themselves and to be aggressive, which carries over to your offense. It carries over your pitching staff. When they see and they know they make a mistake that we're still behind them, and we understand that's part of the game, it allows you to go forward instead of always looking about the mistakes that you had made. 
Yeah, you know, that's, that's so funny. That's how with our coaching staff, we're the same way. We're, we're like, look, guys, just, you know, let it go. Don't worry about results. All you can take care of is the process and do the best you can and see what happens. I definitely felt that and it's kind of permeated into everything that I've done just learning from you guys. So I got to talk about the staff. <laughs> that staff was crazy. You were there, you know, obviously Soch, you had Bud Black and you had uh, Joe Madden, Hatch, and Griffin. That's a pretty good staff yeah, right there. That had to be fun to come every day. I don't think it gets any better. Now. I don't think so. I, I mean, I don't yeah. think so. It's with the personalities and with just the knowledge. Joe Madden at that time, that was it's like one of the smartest coaches I've ever been around. Yeah. With good common sense, too. Um, you know, we would run things back and forth at each other all the time. Buddy Black, I mean, just great personality, oh, great yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Handle the pitching staff was amazing. Yeah. And Mickey Hatcher, who you you dealt with some there. Love him. Um, yeah. You know, crazy energy. Do crazy anything for guy, you. Yeah. Do work his tail mm-hmm. off. And like you said, any anything for the player that, that yep. could make them better, he was there to do. And and he got it. He got the hitters excited about hitting. You know, you get to go to the big leagues. Most everybody at that time has an idea mechanically what they should do. And, and Mickey, he could get a guy fired up about hitting as, oh, as yeah. good as anybody I've ever seen. So uh, it was it was an awesome staff. Yeah, the, we were together there for that same staff for those five years until Joe Madden got his managing job with Tampa Bay, and then and then we started changing some. From a player's perspective, if you look down that line uh, and all the names that you just said I think what makes these guys special is that it didn't matter what you did on the field they got involved with you personally on a personal level and it wasn't from number one to 25 on the roster they treated everybody the same Buddy Black would sit out there and stretch uh, during stretch and he would I mean he would just hold court and we would be laughing and uh, we were stretching our stomachs more laughing than we were stretching. I mean, that guy was awesome. Madden was, was with all of his quirky little things. I mean, uh, just hanging out with us uh, sometimes at night. And obviously Hatch, uh, they, they broke the mold with that guy. I love that guy to death. And, and you, he always wanted the best for you. And like you said, he worked his butt off. But there was such a wide variety of personalities. But there was one common theme that, you know, you guys knew us, cared about us on a personal level first and foremost, and then went from there onto the baseball. And I think that's what people want. They, they want people to care about them, right? I think that's what makes all of you guys so special and why you guys are such great managers coming off that staff. Man, I was just, just happy to be a part of that. I mean, it really changed my career. So then in 2011, you go and manage the Brewers. In 2010, the Brewers were 77 and 85. Your first season managing them, they went to 96 and 66. Most wins in franchise history, won the NL Central title. And uh, that's, that was the first title in 29 years. Runner up for manager of the year to Kirk. Gibson. It doesn't look like there was much of a transition that you needed to make going from the bench coach to the manager. There looks like you stepped right in and, and were flowing. Yeah, it uh, was something I wanted to do for a long time. It took a long time, yeah. obviously, uh, going to the big leagues. It was there 11 years before I got that chance. And Doug Mellon, the GM there, through the interview process, uh, I felt really good and comfortable with him. And, uh, and I knew he had a good team. It was a matter of, I think, those guys getting to know me, uh, getting to trust what I was like and what I wanted. I think that trust factor is probably the biggest thing that a manager or coach can do is if, if you can get your players to trust you, then they do anything you ask them to do. If, if they know that you're just after uh, wins and you don't care about them uh, personally, they're not willing, as willing to do things when you ask them to do it. But when they know you are interested in them, you're interested in their careers, uh, you're definitely still interested in winning. But I think any player 
Um, yes, you have to worry about yourself and your career and your family, but you also know that you know your teammates are important. The peers that you are trying to do things for is is a big part of what you do as a player. And, and we had some we had some personalities on that team that I had to uh, try to figure out. And and once I did, and they kind of bought into what I thought was the right way to do it. All that talent and all that ability that we had uh, showed showed through. We didn't start the season very well. We scuffled for the first month, and, and I know the GM wasn't very happy about it. I wasn't, and the players weren't, because we really did think we had a good team. And then uh, and then we caught fire, got back up to 500, because we started way below that. And at All-Star break, we were close. We were a couple games behind. We were all kind of bunched in there. And then after the All-Star break, we took off and, and went on some really long streaks. It's got to be frustrating to start off slow like that because sometimes you just can't put the finger on what it is and guess how do you approach that? How do you try to figure that out as a manager? Because you obviously are not swinging the bat or throwing the ball or catching the ball. What's your philosophy on that? I mean, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, those things are hard to figure out. Uh, 2002, the team you talked about with the Angels, we started terrible. You know, Social was supposed to be fired and you know, those were the rumors at the first month of the season. And then all of a sudden we went off and won a bunch of games in a row and, and then just played great the rest of the year. But we're going through it now uh, here in Boston. And mm-hmm. we went a World Series last year thinking we have a great team again. And we start off awful. I mean, right now we're nothing's clicking. The pitching's not good. The defense isn't good. And the, the offense isn't good. We know, we know we still have a good team. And you can't answer why those things happen. It's, um, you know, it's a feeling you get at they asked me a couple of days ago, you know, about that team and it started so bad in 2002 and what happened and, and we weren't playing well. And all of a sudden, David Eckstein gets a grand slam in the ninth inning to win a game for us. It fired everybody up. You know, the next day we come out, win again and we win again. And then like a week later, Eckstein hits another grand slam in the ninth. <laughs> and it was like crazy. What are the odds, right? Yeah. So you don't know what it is that turns things around. You don't know why it's going to happen. Good teams, you know, it's hard to go through a whole season continuing playing bad the whole time if you're good. So I don't expect, obviously, that that to happen. But it, but when it's going to turn around, it's it's hard to figure out. That's so funny. Yeah, to your point, there's going to be a regression to the mean. You have good players. They, they're a world championship team with, I mean, same group of guys. Uh, it was funny when I interviewed Garner, I asked him what turned around because they were four games under 500 a month after spring uh, after All-Star break. He said they had bases loaded, Roger Clemens up. He gives him the take. Clemens doesn't look down. Hits a double bench. He clears the bases, and he said from there they went 36 and 10, and he took him to the World Series that year. Wow. And if you remember in 2004 with the Angels, when Mike Sosha got rid of our left fielder Jose Guillen, oh my gosh, that team went crazy. We came back from what three games with the last in the last like 12 yeah, to we, Oakland. Yeah, that was um, you know those things are hard to do, but but sometimes they really work. And, oh my gosh, and, it was um, crazy. Yeah, and then you know sometimes it's not just. It's not just that player's fault is why you do things, but because of one move, it just it ends up freeing up other things that happen. Those are hard to explain too because they're very difficult to do. But it, it, if you remember, it was the the media's like, oh, they're dead, they're done. What the stupidest right. move ever. So it was almost like a bunker mentality, not to. Please don't compare it to the military, but it was almost like, okay, it's us against the world, and man, it was a different game there for a good yeah. two weeks. And he was a good player. He was, not, yeah, he was, yeah, a, he was a like really good player. Yeah, you're just trying to figure out what can jumpstart what's going on. <laughs> Let's go back in 2000, so late 2017, you get a call from Alex Cora. 
and he asked you to come and be his bench coach. I think that says so much because you managed him in double A and you guys won the, the championship that year in San Antonio. But to have a former player call you and say, I need your help here, that's got to be the most flattering thing because you're his manager. And, and not all players get along with their managers or agree with their managers. And to have that happen, I think that's really cool. Yeah, I, I think it was cool, too. Alex had the right things to say. I liked Alex as a player, smart player, good common sense. And, uh, and his personality was really good. And I knew there is growing pains when you haven't managed before. I mean, there's nobody that is that good that they step out of playing and are a good manager right away. Nobody. Working with Alex and what he had to say for me about, you know, he needed some help. And we talked about a few different things. And Dave Dombrowski was great in his comments and how he, uh, how he kind of approached me and what he thought, uh, how I could help the team. Just going back and talking to Sosh and talking to Billy Epler, it was a good move at the right time. Yeah, I'm sure it was difficult, but... Do you see any similarities between the 2002 Angels and the 2018 Red Sox? Both world championship teams, you were on the staff for both of them. Did you see any similarities between them, or what do you think? Yeah, we um, you know, we went to the playoffs a lot uh, with the Angels. Uh, yeah, there was that's a, true. There was a nice five to eight years there where we were in a lot of playoffs. And, mm-hmm. and you're with different teams. And I know Mike Socha and I always talk about the 2002 team, and it will never be with another one like that. Just personalities and how everything they did was was to try to win. They didn't care about themselves one bit. If, it, if it was going to help the team, that's all they cared about. They were tired of losing and they wanted to put together something that could possibly get in the World Series and eventually we won it. But So that part of it was, I didn't think I'd ever be with a team like that. Last year was pretty darn close. It, um, it was probably obviously the best team I've ever been with. I mean, you win 108 ball games. That's kind of ridiculous. I mean, we won 100 games with the Angels one year. I thought, wow, it seemed like we were winning every night. And uh, and that team last year was different than the 2002 team because in 2002, uh, our offense was fantastic. Um, we could we could produce and manufacture run as good as any team I've ever been with. If we were going into the last innings and we were tied or going to extra innings, I knew we were going to win because we could figure out how to score a run. And it wasn't just by the homer. It was whatever it took, get on a walk, hit and run, or a stolen base or something, and then a base hit. Last year's team could do that, but it was more a power team. They hit homers, and we still ran. We still did all the little things that made it, I thought, made it a really exciting team. But everything went right. The starting pitching was great. The relief pitching was great. With the Angels, a little different. The starting pitching wasn't as good. The bullpen was fantastic. We had a couple of good starters. It wasn't that we didn't have anybody, but that bullpen just every time we got to the sixth inning, it was zeros the rest of the game. And allowed us to that great offense to come and manufacture a run and we'd win. Um, last year, we explosive offense. We would, you know, first inning score five runs and then two innings later score another three. And then the game was basically over with that good starting staff and that good bullpen. And so they're different, but as far as fun, and guys just wanting to win, uh, they're both really special groups. Yeah, I always talk about how I joined the team in 2003, and I never in a big league camp sit down to a players' meeting where it was just the hitters, and they talked the philosophy of hit and run, bunt, uh, first to third. This is how we do it on this team, you know, because we had some new guys. They were a high, high 
character group that basically you guys set the tone those guys basically policed it themselves and I was so impressed with the team and the players on that team and the leadership from Salmon and Erstad and Eckstein guys like that Spezio and GA I mean those guys were like look if you're gonna play on this team this is what we do if you don't do this you're not we don't want you playing on this team basically it, I was so impressed walking in that clubhouse it was that's how you play baseball in my mind oh it is and the, and the more the players can do that and like you talk about police police your own it works so much better it's you guys get tired sometimes and the coach is always trying to motivate or whatever you yeah, need to do yeah. and uh, when your players especially when your best players you know are your hardest workers and they do things right you have a special group and you know, last year, our offense, you know, Mookie and, and JD, I mean, those are the hard, hardest two working players we, you know, we have offensively. And, and they put more into the analytic part of it, the more into game planning, the more into working in the cage with our hitting coaches. When you have your two guys doing that, everybody else is going to follow. I agree. Well, Rags, thanks for joining me, man. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, it's always good catching up with you. Good luck tonight in the game. Thanks, Adam. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.